0: Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture, with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five, maybe six now, years worth of blogs over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, which is called Context for Kids. I also have two uh video channels on YouTube with free teachings for both adults and kids and um along with the uh, archives of my new radio show for kids Context for Kids. So you can find the uh, link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com including this one. Now Before we move on in our Mark studies, because it's taken us so long to just get to Mark chapter 7, where we're going to start next week. But um, so in Mark 7 and 8, you know, it's it's important to address the elephant in the room, namely the backlash against, you know, any sort of Jewish Gentile relations in the Hellenistic era brought about by the tragic circumstances chronicled in 2nd Maccabees, which we talked about last week in the Hanukkah broadcast. Now, I am, of course, referring to the attempts by High Priest Jason, who paid the pagan king Antiochus Epiphanes in order to steal the position from his own brother Onias. You know, so he, he wanted to not only make Jerusalem a fully realized Greek city with all the trimmings, but he also wanted to remove the Torah as the law of the land. And, um, you know, there was vi- there was violent political fallout that ensued as a result. Now, we talked about this in greater depth last week, and although I don't have... A full grown-up teaching on the revolt and what it led to, I do have one available at contextforkids.com, which I will link to the transcript when I post it to my blog on Friday. So, Jubilees was written in the aftermath of the Maccabean Revolt, during a time of xenophobic contempt and even hatred for Gentiles, and specifically the Greeks and Idumeans. Rome had not yet entered the picture in any real way... Although they were on friendly terms, having signed a mutual protection pact toward the end of the uh, 35 years worth of on-again, off-again hostilities with the Seleucids and their allies. One of which being the Edomites, which will weigh heavily into what was written in Jubilees. Now, Jubilees is a very important sectarian document of the Second Temple era. Now, what do I mean by sectarian document? Well, a sectarian document is a writing that is considered to be authoritative or somewhat authoritative by a sect or a denomination of a religion. I think the easiest way to describe this is through Mormonism. Mormons consider themselves to be the true representatives of Christianity, okay? Following the true teachings of Jesus. However... A great many of their beliefs do not line up with the biblical account, and to justify this, they have sectarian documents. For example, the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price, etc., etc., that are considered authoritative and contain stories which serve to promote their specific beliefs. Within the Mormon Church, you also have the FLDS, it's I think that's the fundamentalist Latter Day Saints. I I know the F stands for like fundamentalist. Um, and even the Mormons think they're occult. That's um, that's the Jeffers, the Warren or Warren Jeffs, is that the name? And, and they have their own writings and doctrines that they consider to be authoritative, and they believe that the rest of the Mormons are apostate. Of course sectarian documents carry a lot of emotional weight because you know no one who has accepted one wants to believe that they've been hoodwinked despite a complete lack of archaeological evidence or the dna evidence among the american indian tribes that would prove their claims people still cling to these documents in fact people will go to great lengths in order to substantiate them. You know, the Paleo-Hebrew Ten Commandments found etched into a rock in Las Lunas, New Mexico, for example, you know, is believed by archaeologists to be a Mormon forgery hoping to prove claims of an ancient Jewish civilization in the Americas, given that there's no other proof available. And uh, those who have claimed to authenticate the site are both considered frauds and have been discredited. And I mean, they've been discredited by people who are experts in this area, okay? Still, people are very emotional about the stone and and take it as authentic as a matter of faith. Another modern example is Hislop's Two Babylons, which, although completely discredited by history and archaeology and is biblically unsupported, still inspires books and teachings... Like crazy. And I, I used to believe this stuff too. Okay. Before I started actually studying ancient religions. From the archaeological and literary record. Which the primary sources. And the bible in depth. So you know. We probably all have this sort of stuff in our heads. That isn't actually true. And and don't question it. Until forced to. And sometimes not even then. Well. Well. During the Greek and Roman era um, sort of Judaism, you know, it, w- it was no different than we are today. In believing and promoting is true what appeals to us emotionally. Groups started splintering off as a reaction to the increasing Hellenization of the culture. And all this, I haven't said it before, is like in the 100s before the Common Era, okay? Now the Hasidim And the most famous Hasidim were the followers of Matthias Hasmonea and his sons, the most famous of which being Judas Maccabeus, you know, who we know from the Maccabean revolt. Um, Then there's the Qumran sect, which was a priestly community out in the wilderness in the desert, who might be Essenes, might be the Essenes that Josephus mentioned, maybe not. Uh, The Sadducees, another priestly community, uh, a very corrupt one, in league with the Romans. And the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees were laymen who studied and promoted a certain adherence to the law that the Qumran community thought made them look like a bunch of soft, sinful pansies. So the degree of Hellenization differed within the various groups, but Hellenization isn't something that's always automatically bad. After all, you know, the teacher-disciple teaching lifestyle was directly linked, lifted from the Greeks. It's a good system. Good administration's good administration, I always say. But the change from the law as a system of wisdom for judges to a hard legal code can also be traced to Greco-Roman-era influences. How each sect reacted to this increasingly outside influence shows up in their writings and jubilees, which was originally written in Hebrew and of which we only have small fragments today. And then it was translated into Greek, of which we have no fragments, and Syriac. And we have a few Syriac passages, and by we, I don't mean me. (laughs) I mean the scholarly community. People have these somewhere. And uh, then it was um, translated from Greek into Ethiopic and Latin. Now, the only Greek we have of Jubilees comes in the form of quotes from early church fathers. We know that it was originally in Hebrew because that's what our oldest fragments are written in. The Syriac is obviously a direct translation from the Hebrew because it contains no Greek loan words or markers, which both Ethiopic and Latin versions are full of, these, these Greek little hints. We have a complete Ethiopic text and about a quarter of it in Latin and some passages in Syriac. So if it were not for the Ethiopian church, like First Enoch, we wouldn't even be discussing this as it was not popular enough among the Jews to survive it, and with good reason, and we'll see why. Jubilees is also called Little Genesis, and it was written during a fairly narrow time period by a forerunner of the Qumran sect, what might have been the Essenes, or the early Hasidim, um, who had an in-depth knowledge of uh, temple practices and um, and whoever wrote this had access to the Samaritan Torah. <laughs> which is kind of shocking. Now it really narrows down the candidates. Now, obviously it is as old or older than the Hebrew fragments. But it makes reference to certain events that mirror the Maccabean revolt and quotes from First Enoch, which was a wildly popular Second Temple era sectarian document. So it was written after First Enoch. It's fairly pro-Jewish establishment, and so it has to be written before the big brouhaha between John Hyrcanus and the teacher of righteousness and the split between John Hyrcanus and the Pharisees. It can't be a genuinely canonical document, however, because there are too many chronological mistakes. Anachronisms, which are things that don't belong in the Genesis era, but belong in the Maccabean era. So it was written after that. It's And, and, and it disagrees with itself and the Bible on a fairly regular basis. And I'm not just talking about a few times here. We either have to accept Genesis as presented in the Torah or Jubilees, but we cannot accept both. Whoever wrote it, wrote it in order to explain and demand adherence to the peculiar beliefs of their splinter sect of Judaism and specifically a calendar that was flawed For the exact same reasons as the calendar they were attacking. But very few would have picked up on it in those times, whereas anyone can see it now just about. They accepted it as authoritative not because it was inerrant, because it's full of errors, okay? But because it backed their fervently held beliefs of what Judaism needed to be in order to be faithful to God in the midst of an increasingly Hellenistic environment. They saw what high priest Jason was able to do, bringing a gymnasium into the holy city where men competed with one another in the nude, replacing the law of Moses, you know, and creating a situation where their country was eventually overrun and the temple defiled by pagans, not to mention so many people slaughtered. In the opinion of the sect members, because if it was just one guy, then nothing would have been preserved, right? Okay, so in the opinion of the sect members, holding a hard line that went beyond Torah, way beyond Torah, was absolutely necessary to their survival. And so the language used by the author to describe their desired reforms was steeped in manufactured tradition and an utter whitewashing of the lives of the patriarchs. Jubilees is a romantic bit of propaganda, not only pro their positions on how the Jewish life should be lived, but also raising certain of the patriarchs to mythical levels of virtue, and especially Jacob, oh my gosh, which are unsupported by the Torah, and because, you know, all propaganda needs a good villain, the vilification of Esau and Reuben beyond that which is even remotely justified in Torah. Why? Because the Edomites fought against them alongside the Greeks, just as they had fought alongside the Babylonians before the exile. And Reuben, the firstborn, had to be utterly discredited in order to justify Jubilee's near worship of Levi and over-the-top promotion of Judah. And if you're wondering why uh, the -the over-the-top promotion of Judah, it's because the the family of David had become very wicked and had gotten into disrepute. And that's why they'd gone into exile, into Babylon. Failure of leadership. So, you know, you got to get Judah back up on top. Like 2 Maccabees, which we discussed last week, myths and legends and outright manipulations were and are shamelessly promoted by sects in order to bolster their views and control how they want people to look at history, and hopefully I said second Maccabees and not first, because they're entirely different documents. Now, Alexander Hislop did the same thing in the 19th century when he wrote The Two Babylons, where he completely manufactured a racist and scandalous life story of Nimrod, totally unsupported by the Bible, or by history, or archaeology. Yeah, in order to discredit Catholicism, and to promote his personal views as the ones to be followed. As Hislop was a member of a recently formed splinter group himself, we see the common pattern. Again, we could also talk about the writings associated with Mormonism that claimed to be of divine origins, or the teachings of Jim Jones, or any number of other cult leaders who rewrote God in their own image. Now, sometimes people get the wrong idea about sectarian writings. As though Jewish people were different in this regard than the rest of the world, but of course they aren't. They wrote fictions about the Bible to justify what they believed and how everyone should live. And they were penned pseudepigraphically, or under a false name, which is what pseudepigraphically means. Generally, they use the name of a famous individual like Enoch and especially the patriarchs and Daniel. This was a very popular form of writing, and we see it a lot popping up in the Dead Sea Scrolls and with the Ethiopian Jews and the Ethiopian Christians and what they consider to be canonical. Now, we cry foul at this sort of thing nowadays, but we mustn't assume that they shared our prejudices against this form of, quote-unquote, getting your point across. Different cultures, different times, different values, different outlooks. These are called Judeo-Hellenistic works with good reason, because, you know, one way or another, these works were all the result of the clash and cooperation between Second Temple Judaism and the greater Greco-Roman culture. Now, however, with Jubilees, we should absolutely cry foul because it represents a deliberate deception on the part of the author who created a Thus saith the Lord document and attributed all of his added doctrines to be written on the heavenly tablets and even um, observed by uh, God and the angels. As this was penned with the intention of discrediting and damning others who disagreed, this can't just be called a normal work of Midrashic fiction. (laughs) Jubilees was a hoax designed to gather a following under the auspices of being a divine revelation to Moses. But, but, this doesn't mean that we dismiss the whole thing either because it's an important window into Second Temple era Jewish beliefs that we might even see echoed in the Bible. And in fact, it's going to help greatly help us understand Mark's Mark chapter seven and eight. But before we go there, long before we go there, I want to briefly talk about the problems with Jubilees. And this will in no way, no way be exhaustive. In fact, I'm leaving a lot more on the table and I'm picking up here. Jubilees has a lot of chronological problems, meaning timeline problems. And for this part, I will be citing the work of the late Dr. Leslie McFall, a lecturer in Hebrew and the Old Testament, and a researcher at Cambridge University specializing in biblical chronology. Did a lot of work on 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. This paper is called The Chronology of Jubilees, where he um, marks every, or he charts everything out and takes notes of the discrepancies with the Genesis text, which I will link in the transcript because it is online along with his other unpublished articles. He was a big kahuna in biblical chron- chronology research, let me tell you. He just died like, what, five, three or five years ago, I can't remember. So let's look at the timeline problems. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and Benjamin all have multiple timelines within Jubilees for various reasons including multiple birth dates and ages at events that don't match up with one another. Not only doesn't Jubilees agree with itself but it also doesn't agree with the Bible consistency consistently and when we're really looking at the timelines of the free pre-fled generations, some of the ages of begetting line up only with the Samaritan Torah, but also not consistently. Honestly, this guy's timelines are a hot mess. Now, using his math and comparing his numbers with the Bible and sometimes just with his own claims, how do we have one? Abraham was 227 years old when he died instead of 175. Two, Isaac was born when Abraham was 111 instead of 110. 3. Sarah weaned Isaac when he was 13. Ew. 4. I mean, he didn't say that, but when you do the adding, yeah. Jacob was 126 when he went down to Egypt instead of 130, and that was because of other problems that had occurred, and they were catching up. Um... 5. Jacob's children were all born within 13 or 7, depending on how you read it, years, leaving Joseph as a baby when they departed instead of a child whom the Bible claim was old enough to bow before Esau. Instead of, um, you know, instead of um, Jacob's children being born over a period of, you know, Twenty years, either thirteen or twenty years, as the Bible claims, because the writer forgets the six additional years served for the flocks and seems to have them magically appear overnight. And if you weren't aware of there, there's a debate between whether Jacob married Leah before the seven years or after the seven. There, there's a debate. Okay, so (laughs) Uh, anyway, yeah, these flocks magically appear overnight, and then he's leaving. Um, six, by his chronology, Dan was born after Judah, three verses after he claimed that Judah was born before Dan. Uh, seven, Jubilee states that Dina was 12 and she was raped, but his own chronology says she was nine. Bible doesn't give an age. Um, which by his reckoning also would make Levi and Simeon 16 and 19 when they single or double-handedly slaughtered an entire city. Uh, 8. Peleg became uh, Rue's father when he was only 12 years old, which is enormously unlikely. All right. So let's talk about some and only some outright errors because uh, this is only 50 minutes long. <laughs> I only do some. In Jubilees 5 9, the days given for a man are 110 years and not the 120, according to the Bible. And according to his chronology, Noah builds the Ark in, like, one year. In 614, Noah is commanded to perform the Tamid offering every morning and evening, forever. That's two male lambs a day. He originally brought seven males on the Ark and seven females. Even if they had twins during that year and all of them were male, he would still only have 21 male lambs, and he already sacrificed one of them when he departed. Within two weeks, he would no longer be able to perform the Tamid. But this is just one of the many anachronisms forced backwards into Genesis from Exodus. In 623, there are four additional festivals to be celebrated. uh, Forever, one every 13 weeks. In 1317, Jubilees claims that Lot left Abraham and that Abraham was sad about it, whereas Genesis clearly says that Abraham sent Lot away. In uh, 2216, they are forbidden to have any dealings whatsoever with the Gentiles, and especially don't eat with them. And so this is an important Second Temple era innovation to Judaism that's found nowhere in the Bible. Remember, he's talking about Genesis. Genesis. Not Exodus, not Leviticus, not Numbers, not Deuteronomy, not Ezra, not Nehemiah, not none of that. Genesis. Remember what's supposed to be there and what is not. Now, this right here is really interesting. Um, Jubilees 23, verses 26 through 29. And in those days the children shall begin to study the laws and seek the commandments and to return to the path of the righteousness and the days shall begin to grow many and increase among those children till their days draw nigh to 1000 years and to a greater number of years than before was the number of the days and there shall be no old man nor one who is not satisfied with his days for as shall be for all shall be as children and youths and all their days they shall complete and live in peace and joy there shall be no Satan or any evil destroyer for all their days shall be as days of blessing and healing. And I'm going to have to tell you the problem with that in just a minute. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context, where um, hopefully you will not hear my dog scratching, my dog who will go unnamed, because if he, he had to be in here, okay? (laughs) I never let him in here. And if he hears his name, you know he's going to be like, yeah, it's going to be not good. Anyway, this week we are talking about the uh, pseudepigraphic work um, of Jubilees, which shows up in the Apocrypha um, and is not easily classified as a form of literature, by the way, you know, because it's got elements, but it's not really any one genre. It's really strange. I can't call it a midrash. I can't call it an apocalypse. I can't call it this. I can't call it that. I can call it a big fake. (laughs) That's about as close as I can get. But right before we ran out of time, I was reading to you a, uh, a busted prophecy, and actually, there are a few of them in in there, but I'm just using this one. So I'm going to read it again. Jubilees, chapter 23, verses 26 through 29. Um, and really, this is uh, right here. This is a manipulation piece designed to get people to living a more righteous life. And it would just be good if people would just say, hey, guys, let's live a more righteous life. <laughs> because it's the right thing to do. But no, it says, in those And in those days the children shall begin to study the laws and to seek the commandments and to return to the path of righteousness. And the days shall begin to grow many and increase among the children of men till the de- their days draw nigh to one thousand years. And the greater of number of years than before was the number of the days. And there shall be no man... No old man, nor one who is not satisfied with his days, for all shall be as children and youths, and all their days shall be complete and live in peace and joy, and there shall be no Satan nor any evil destroyer, for all their days shall be of blessing and healing. Now the context of this was, um, they had just spoken of why lifespans were so much shorter than they used to be. Is because of wickedness so the wickedness the lifespan got shorter but he's saying that um if people start studying the torah and living righteously they're going to keep living and they're going to live to like a thousand years or more of course compared to when this was written people are heck a lot studying the torah more and uh even worldwide and no still 100 years or so you know <laughs> so sorry So, more background on this. The Jews were free of foreign tyranny for the first time in hundreds of years, and they were under the high priesthood of the Hasmoneans, who would not claim kingship until one or two more generations, depending on whether this was written during the time of Simon or during the time of John Hyrcanus. It was a time of great hope because the Hasidim, the ones who zealously fought against the Seleucids and their allies, were very seriously faithful Jews. And they were all waiting for the Davidic Messiah King and the final day of judgment um, mentioned in verses previous to the one I shared. Now, everything, you know, right then, everything seemed awesome. All right. They had their own choice of priest, their own law, and things were getting back to how they felt it should be after terrible oppression. Torah scrolls were being rewritten after having been burned. It was a time of incredible hope. This was written in the midst of that, a quote-unquote prophecy that the Jews would study Torah and increase righteousness, that lifespans would increase to pre-flood levels and even higher. Um, yeah, not so much. Okay. it's It hasn't happened. So let's look at uh 2634. Esau's blessing from Jacob is given an addendum. You know, after uh I, from Isaac, sorry, after Jacob stole it. Good grief. Um, so a- Esau's blessing from Isaac is given an addendum to promise what a great sinner he would be. <laughs> it's like it's like talk about adding uh Insult to injury or or, or whatever. Now, remember his descendants fought on the side of both Babylon and the Seleucids um, and were later conquered by John Hyrcanus and forcibly converted. Um, Herod the Great was a descendant of the Esau, the Edomites. They were called the Idumeans at that point. Now, this is propaganda. Jubilees also later claims that when Esau left Isaac and Rebekah, his parents, that he took all their animals with them and left them in utter poverty, and that he waged war on Jacob, and Jacob killed Esau. Laban, on the other hand, is practically portrayed as a saint, with it written on the aforementioned quote-unquote heavenly tablets that the younger daughter should never be married off before the older. This, so he's just doing what he had to do, you know. Laban was so righteous. Now, this, along with not mentioning the idol incident or Leah's subsequent harsh treatment of Rebecca, you know, it made it possible for the author to talk about how perfect a wife Leah was and how she was never anything but gentle and sweet. Why was this altered? because Laban was the grandfather of the twelve tribes, and Leah was the mother of Judah and Levi, who were also creatively embellished in the text for the sake of promoting the uncontested authority of the priesthood and the hope for the coming Davidic Messiah. In fact, the slaughter of the residents of Shechem was rewritten in order to make it look like Levi was behaving righteously, and the incident between Judah and Tamar completely disregards the Bible in claiming that neither Er nor Onan ever had sexual relationships with that woman. All right? Thus, she was a virgin when Judah went into her. And he gets a total pass on that, all right? And thus not guilty of uncovering the nakedness of his son. Boy, this guy likes to clean up the messy little bits. In fact, the author has a real fixation on sexual sin and repeats the injunction to burn an indecent woman a bit more than I would say is healthy. Okay, a lot more. In fact, the guy is super focused on nudity, circumcision, festivals... Honoring parents, refraining from contact with Gentiles, and especially with intermarriage. Oh, and the very legalistic Sabbath laws in the final chapter. It would seem that this is very much stemming from a uh, backlash, you know, from the intrusion of the Hellenistic gymnasium where nudity was practiced, the undoing of circumcisions, young people flocking to Hellenistic ways in defiance of parental traditions, you know, and a desire for it never to happen again. The focus and backdating of all the festivals and even repurposing of them seems to be an attempt on the author's part to reinvigorate the festivals in the eyes of his fellow Jews by giving them more meaning than is otherwise found in the text. Chevalot, for example, was rewritten as a yearly covenant renewal ceremony from the time of Noah and the giving of the rainbow. Abraham made booths for his hired men to celebrate Sukkot. In the middle of the desert. (laughs) Jacob instituted Yom Kippur as a day of mourning when they believed that Jacob was dead and Dina and Bilhah both died of grief. Which when i think about it it's really odd because before that jacob was given some quote-unquote heavenly tablets so there again that taught him the future of all his children so why didn't he know that joseph wasn't really dead but there's a problem with what was written because it is not written as a biblical account where the sins and mistakes and faithlessness of the patriarchs are related in living color and where the Psalms and the prophets speak of a time when the Gentiles must be brought into the fold. You know, when read as an effort to get the pendulum swinging, you know, far from Hellenism, this becomes more understandable as propaganda literature, complete with bad guys that are currently relatable, and dangers that go back farther and 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 could have av- been avoided if uh if we only we haven't you know turned away from the one true calendar and the four extra feast days after Moses died, speaking of the calendar, let's go there because i I know that some people have been worried and harassed and, and told that they should be following this, and I have to minister to some of them sometimes, talk them down from the ledge. So this is in chapter 6, verses 32 through 38, I think. So, for I have written in the book of the first law, okay, there's a book of the first law, in that which I have written for thee, that thou shouldst celebrate it in its season, why doesn't somebody, <laughs> it's like King James English, right, one day in the year, And I explain to thee its sacrifices that the children of Israel should remember and should celebrate it throughout their generations this month, one day in every year. And they're talking about Shavuot right there. And on the new, also known as Pentecost, and on the new moon of the first month, and on the new moon of the fourth month, and on the new moon of the seventh month, and on the new moon of the tenth month, there are days of remembrance. And the days of the seasons in the four divisions of the year, these are written and ordained as a testimony forever as Noah ordained them for himself as feasts for the generations forever, so that they have become thereby a memorial to him. And on the new moon of the first month, he was bidden to make for himself an ark. And on that day, the earth became dry and opened. He opened the ark and saw the earth. And on the new moon, the seventh month, all the mouths of the abysses of the earth were opened and the waters began to descend on them. And on the new moon of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains were seen, and Noah was glad, and on this account he ordained them for himself as feasts for a memorial forever, and thus they are ordained. And they place them on heavily, heavenly tablets. Each had thirteen weeks. And this is where it gets confusing. <sighs> from one to another passed their memorial, from the first to the second, from the second to the third, and from the third to the fourth. And All of the days of the commandment will be two and fifty weeks of days, so fifty-two weeks, and these will make the entire year complete. Thus it is engraven and ordained on the heavenly tablets, and there is no neglecting this commandment for a single year or from year to year. And command thou the children of Israel that they observe the years according to this reckoning, 364 days, and these will constitute a complete year. And they will not disturb its time from the days and from the feasts, for everything will fall out in them according to their testimony, and they will not leave out any day nor disturb any feasts. But if they so neglect and do not observe them according to this commandment, then they will disturb all the seasons and the years will be dislodged from this order. And they will disturb the seasons and the years will be dislodged, and they will neglect their ordinances. And the children of Israel will forget, and will not find the path of the years, and will forget the new moons, and the seasons, and the sabbaths, and they will go wrong as to all the orders of the years. For I know, and from henceforth I declare it unto thee, and it is not of my own devising, for the book lies written before me, and on the heavenly tablets the divisions of days is ordained, lest they forget the feast of the covenant, and walk according to the feast of the Gentiles, after their error and after their ignorance." For there will be those who will assuredly make observations of the moon, how it disturbs the seasons and comes in from year to year ten days too soon. For this reason the years will come upon them when they will disturb the order and make an abominable day the day of testimony and an unclean day a feast day and they will be confounded all the days the holy with the unclean and the unclean day with the, un, with the holy. For they will go wrong in the months, in the Sabbaths, and the feasts, and the jubilees. And for this reason I command and testify to thee, that thou mayest testify to them. For after thy death, this is talking to Moses, thy children will disturb them. So that they will not make the, the year 364 days only. And for this reason they will go wrong as to the new moons and seasons and Sabbaths and festival. And they will eat all kinds of blood with all kinds of flesh okay so here's the problem he complains that the lunis- lunisolar calendar practiced by the jews is evil because it loses 10 days a year and has to be corrected so he claims that if they just keep the 364 day calendar which is um it's 12 30 day months and um where my pen It's 1230-day months, and every third month, you tack on an extra day, okay? And and so you've got this 364-day calendar, because that's going to be perfect and we'll never need an adjustment. And you know, back when this was written, that probably sounded legit, but any first grader knows that there are 365 days in a normal year, and kids just a little bit older than that will know There is still another day that needs to be added every four to keep the calendar from getting loopy. So, at best, this calendar would still need an intercalculary month added once every 24 years in order to stay on track. He says nothing about this problem. Total double standard. The truth is that the solar years were created by God in a very inconvenient fashion. To deal with, you know, mathematically, and so we need the sun and the moon with the feast days not always falling on Wednesdays and Fridays, and the days of the year always being the same. I suppose it keeps us from just making a calendar and never having to think about it. And and check out the cheap shot at the end, you know, they'll stop observing this heavenly tablet calendar and end up eating blood and pig soon thereafter. Did I mention this was propaganda? <laughs> so yeah, three 30-day months, they add a day. Three 30-day months, they add a day. Three 30-day months, <laughs> they add a day. And that added day is a festival day. Problem is, you know what? Even if we took this calendar up again, when would we start it? What day? You know, we don't know anymore. So it's completely, someone would have to make up a day and it would be the same thing. Now, but now that we've had some fun, okay, let's talk about why Jubilees is important to the study of the Gospels, because this is the only reason why I read this. It took, and then the papers related to it, it, like took four days out of my life um, this time. By the time that the events of Mark 7 and 8 occurred, relationships between Jews and Gentiles were devastated after the Babylonian exile, the Persian oppression under Haman, the Seleucid movements to eliminate Torah law, violate the temple, and slaughter the Jews on the Sabbath when they would not fight back, and the Roman rule under the murderous Idumean Herod the Great and his sons, and under the brutal Pontius Pilate, too. It had been a rough 600 years. No one wanted to hear the words of the prophets and the psalmist clearly stating that the Gentiles would be brought into the faith. There was great resentment fear, and anger toward the Gentiles. Even a cursory reading of the Qumran sect's writings shows that even the most faithful priestly Jews were hungering and thirsting for revenge of the worst sort. Now, although Jubilees is not canon and amounts to a deliberate deception or the rantings of a madman, smart madman, but a madman nonetheless, but not smart enough to keep it all organized in his mind so he didn't mess up the dates, um, it absolutely reflects the mood and some of the beliefs at the time. Jubilees wasn't written in a vacuum. People felt this way. And because they felt that way toward Gentiles, it resulted in beliefs that would be held to one degree or another by the various factions. The static calendar, for example, was preferred by the Sadducees, who wanted all feasts to fall on Wednesdays and Fridays, except for first fruits, which... Was all or I mean um, yeah. First fruits was always on a Sunday. Um, the Qumran Covenanters would never have dealings with Gentiles, and they also believed that having sex with one spouse on the Sabbath was a sin. Sadducees believed that too. <sighs> Not on the Sabbath, guys, and 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 would have held um, with the other extra biblical. Sabbath regulations as well as um, the the Qumran people wouldn't even save someone's life if it required effort on the Sabbath. The Shammai school of Pharisees was ardently anti-Gentile compared to the more liberal Hillelites. But neither was going out of their way to make converts of non-Jews. And I hope you can see why. Even though Jubilees is not legit for doctrine or for canon. You know why it's absolutely legit for kind of testing the waters of the late Second Temple era Judaism. Jubilees explains a lot of what they believed about the Gentiles and why. And why you know perhaps when, when people read this they were quick to accept it. okay. Because they said, yeah, that's exactly how God feels about those disgusting Gentiles and they're the whole reason that we're in this mess in the first place and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. right. So, in Mark 7 and 8, we have the famous incident over the Pharisees rebuking Yeshua because his disciples are eating with unwashed hands. While Luke claims that Yeshua wasn't Eating with washed hands either, and they washed hands not for clean, you know, not because of germs, uh, not because of any biblical commandments either, but because they were concerned with becoming contaminated by gentile defilement in the marketplace. It was sort of um, inspired by the priests. Well, it was. It was inspired by the uh, commandments for the priest who were handling the sacrifices and dealing with the altar in the temple. But there was no command to do this outside of the temple. Yet um, they were concerned with becoming contaminated by Gentile defilement or otherwise in the marketplace. They decided that touching something touched by a Gentile would transfer impurity to one's hands, which would then in turn contaminate their food, which would in turn contaminate them. Okay. Of course, this isn't biblical, and next week we will talk about why But this amounts to a huge problem for Yeshua and the disciples who, you know, later on in the chapter, end up in the regions of um, Tyre, Sidon, and Decapolis. If one can defile themselves by coming into contact with such and such in the marketplace, in the middle of Capernaum or or Jerusalem, you know, wherever... Then it. How on earth can they preach the gospel? How can they share table fellowship with Gentiles? How will they lay their hands on the sick and heal them? How will the gospel be taken to the ends of the earth as prophesied by Isaiah and the prophets? Obviously, it can't. So, These attitudes, they had to be dealt a death blow. Being ritually clean beyond biblical standards would mean an end to the spread of the gospel before it even began. And it was so deeply ingrained that even 10 years later, you know, after the resurrection and ascension, Peter still has to be given a vision in order to even begin to cope with the reality of the situation. And what happened when, you know, so Peter goes and, and he sees that you don't call people unclean like that. Okay? You don't call people common. Um, and, and then he gets back to Jerusalem and they're saying... Saying, hey, what happened? He tells me, "Say, you guys were in the house with Gentiles and you ate with them? Oh my gosh, somebody get the Lysol and the Clorox wipes and, and all that stuff. And, <coughs> and so he tells them the story and they are floored because it totally breaks their paradigms too. Okay? So Jubilees and other sectarian writings are a vital window into the problem that would have stopped the gospel dead in its tracks and certainly would have made the miracles worked by yeshua that we're going to be studying the next few weeks here in gentile lands impossible so anyway i hope that helps you i know i know a lot of people think that jubilees is canonical and all that stuff I hope that if you're one of them that you've borne with me and you will read that article. It's, it will be, um, in the transcript of my blog, theancientbridge.com, theancientbridge.com. And, um, anyway, have a great week. Bye.